Delaware River Valley, with an emphasis on estate planning, estate administration, elder law, and real property matters. RourkeLaw.com to the local edition. News and information to keep you connected in the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. It's Friday. I'm your host, Patricia Robile. Welcome to the award-winning local edition. If you catch us on social media, you would witness that uh, Jason and I went to Binghamton, New York on Wednesday to pick up three awards for Radio Catskill. One for the local edition. Outstanding Public Affairs Show And one for the Outstanding Interview The one I did with John J. Lennon About prison journalism And we also won another award For the PSA PSA That uh, Jason Doe did For the New York 19 Special Election Primary He did a great job there And he was awarded for it So congratulations Jason Congratulations WJFF Radio Catskill We have a great show for you tonight in the second half of the show, we'll be continuing with our Hispanic Heritage Month interviews. This week, we'll be exploring transnational migration with Professor Jean Carlos Coam, a professor at SUNY Orange, and he's giving a talk on that very subject next week for SUNY Orange's celebration of Hispanic Heritage Month. But first, it's Friday on the local edition, and every other Friday, we check in with the Shawanagucks Journal's reporter, Chris Rowley. To see what's going on in Ellenville and Ulster County. Chris, welcome back to the show. The uh, This is election season, so uh, what's happening to the seat that was once held by Pat Ryan, who is now in the Congress? What's happening to his Ulster County executive county seat? Interesting times uh, for Ulster County uh, as uh, uh, we prepare to elect the third, only the third, county executive. Uh, this business with county executives in Ulster County began with Mike Hine in, I think, 2009. And then uh, Pat Ryan uh, uh, took over in, I think it was, when was it? Was it 2015, 2016? 2016. Anyway, when Governor Hochul pulled um, uh, Antonio Delgado out of uh, the 19th district to make him lieutenant governor, that set off a whole kind of little avalanche of uh, electoral changes and so on. And Pat Ryan left the county executive position to uh, to campaign for uh, a, a seat at uh, in federal government. They had to do a, a short election for the re- remainder of uh, Delgado's term. Ryan won that, and now he will be competing with some against somebody else in another district and. It's it set off a very complicated thing. Meanwhile, the search for a new county executive uh, is approaching uh, an election, um, but it began with the Democratic uh, Party of Ulster County in a in a sort of an odd, I mean, not particularly democratic process, electing Jen Metzger uh, as their nominee, and she ran against uh, the county controller Marge Gallagher and the. Um, 
uh, Ulster County's Deputy Executive, Mark Ryder. Um, but Metzger has pretty heavy name recognition. She was um, a state senator uh, for one term. Before that, she was uh, a councillor in Rosendale. So she, she's well known, and she, 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 she uh, came through there. And she's, I think she has a lot of connections uh, in the Democratic Party in Ulster County. And so that, that, that came through. She got 64% of the vote of the Democratic committee members. So that's, that tells you that where her strengths lie. Talking to other folks about what happened, about the nomination, the Democratic nomination for the Ulster County executive position, they felt that it shouldn't have been done behind doors, that this should have been more of a, of a public vote um, than just between the Democratic Party. Well, that would have been hard to organize. I think that's what it come down to. You know, it would have stretched the limits of what is possible in organization. Uh, but what happened was uh, uh, New York State election law requires that committee votes, county committee votes, go by a weighted vote. So each member may have a heavy or light or vote, depending on how many votes were cast on the Democratic line in the last governor's election. So you you can see that already we're reaching back to something that's kind of like in the mists of <laughs> mists of time, right? And and so weighted votes and secret ballots and ranked choice ranked choice voting uh, when you have three candidates uh, competing for this, for this one one nomination, uh, and so it all gets quite procedural. Well, you know uh, they they did this, but I, I can say that I'm pretty sure that uh, Ashley Dittus, who is the um, Democratic uh, Election Commissioner for Ulster County, and uh, Kelly uh, McKenzie, who is the the Democratic chair at this point, uh, are going to work with John Quigley, who is the Republican uh, uh, Election Commissioner, um, and the son, by the way, of James Quigley, who is the Republican candidate. And we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, but they're going to work, I think, starting next year on organizing a new process uh, to elect uh, nominees for these roles, these positions and these elections. Uh, everyone is aware that this was a little bit, you know, uh, kind of 19th century. I mean, maybe there wasn't any cigar smoke in those rooms, but, you know, that's <laughs> a little bit of a, a hint of that kind of activity. So that that probably will change beginning next year. Has someone from the Democratic Party stepped up to challenge Jen Mesker uh, for the Ulster County executive seat? It's James Quigley, uh, who has been the um, uh, supervisor of the town of Ulster. Um, I think he's in his sixth term as a supervisor down of Ulster. Uh, Formerly before that, he was a financial guy in uh, New York City. Uh, He's He's well-liked on the Republican side, uh, has been a, an effective uh, supervisor for Ulster, and uh, he he was just announced. I mean, I don't know that they even had a, a process at all. Uh, he was a clear, appears to have been a Republican candidate even before this process began. Uh, you know, he, he appeared uh, right at the beginning of the, this week with um, uh, a website was up and running, uh, campaign all ready to go. So it's unknown what kind of process the Ulster Republicans went through to appoint him, but he would seem to be to be the obvious choice as the six-time, I think it's six-time supervisor of uh, the town of Ulster. 
and someone with a, a, a record of competence and, uh, you know, delivering uh, in Ulster, in the town of Ulster. Um, the, the thing that he's known for and has, has said on a few occasions, so that even down here in Ellenville, I've picked up on it, is that he uh, would like to see a more close cooperation between um, the county, Ulster County Administration, and the 20 municipalities spread across the county. A little more getting everybody aligned on various you know, shared goals. You know, and you can think there's an immediate single shared goal that's going to come up that this is going to land on the county executive's desk within, oh, a couple of months, a few months, which is finding um, a new countywide landfill, uh, you know, which is that poison chalice that no town wants, but (laughs) someone's going to have to have it. Um, You know, so that that sort of thing is, is, uh, it requires the county legislature and the county executive to be on the same page and working together and not to be opposed to each other, you know, so that that sort of thing. And whether it's Metzger or quickly, those are the sort of issues that are going to have to be dealt with, you know? So, you know, that, there's the race. We have Jen Metzger, um, uh, who has had elective office, uh, you know, uh, for state Senate and, uh, James Quigley, who has been a supervisor for a long time coming at the county executive role from somewhat different positions. Um, Jen knows uh, municipal uh, government. She was a councillor in Rosendale for quite some time as well. So, you know, this this will be an interesting election and a test, actually, I think, of um, just how democratic, party-wise, Ulster County has become. Has Jen Mesker mentioned anything yet as what's going to happen to her position on the Cannabis Control Board? Has she mentioned anything? Uh, no, she hasn't. But it's not, she she'll have to resign. Uh, it's not legal for someone with an elective office to sit on the cannabis control board. That's part of the law that was passed when uh, cannabis was legalized. So she will, if she wins the election, she'll have to resign from the cannabis control board, um, and they'll have to get somebody new for her position. But that's 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 built into the law. So mm-hmm. yeah, and uh, we. What, those, we we all wait for those uh, rules and regulations with uh, gathering anxiety and interest. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a very long election season. Um, we had a, a very confusing primary and special election and straight into the November election and coming next year is a presidential election. So it's going to be a very intense couple of months. So now let's turn to some other news, some environmental news. There's some folks in your area that are upset about some tree clearings. What can you tell us about that? Well, yeah, no, it, 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 this, this is one of those things. Okay, this is a – so at the town board meeting um, for Wawarsing, um, Highway Superintendent Tony Pace, who's got crews out working hard all over – Wawarsing has a lot of roads. It, it's a big rural county, and there's a lot of trees. And as Tony says, when, it, when, when they become a problem, people suddenly don't want them to be theirs. They want them to be the town's especially if they're close to the road. So he's got crews out trimming and cutting trees uh, to stop various kinds of problems like trees falling in the road. But um, so he brought up the trees that line the road that runs from 209 to Lipman Park and then up to the transfer station. Now, the issue there is that these trees, uh, at least in a couple of areas, are very close to the uh, electric wires from... um, uh, Central Hudson, 
and they have been sparking on those wires. And in Tony's uh, inimitable phrase, they've been self-trimming, and he's thinking that they need to be taken down. He thinks that just cutting them back will be a waste of time, and that maybe the best thing is to just take them out, cut them down. Um, well, that I wrote that up, and I did put in that it's not decided yet that it's going to come up at the next town board meeting, uh, and people will be allowed to to comment. And it set off quite a buzz on uh, the, the, the Shangam Journal online. A lot of people commenting uh, that they want those trees preserved and the trees are beautiful and, you know, that and, and, and it's quite reasonable. They are. But, you know, uh, the electric wires getting sparked off all the time sets off the breakers, uh, causes electrical faults and problems, especially now that the park is now equipped with uh, Wi-Fi and some new expensive equipment, and the Wi-Fi is now going to be uh, available at the, the transfer station, which will allow for a real advance into the 21st century. The town of Washington transfer station, at some point, not too far in the distant future, uh, will take credit cards, um, and that will be a huge uh, help for people who need to use the transfer station. Um, but, you know, all, all of that, is slightly put at risk by having trees that are kind of rubbing on the uh, the power lines. So some solution will have to come up, but maybe not all the trees will be cut. Maybe it's just be a handful of trees, and maybe Tony was, you know, misspeaking when he suggested he would cut all of them, or whatever, he'd set off uh, a Ferrari. And I was pleased, actually, that there were a number of people ready to protect those trees. I thought that was a nice, a nice stand. Um, for public opinion there. So, so there's the trees. <laughs> <laughs> hey, the power of journalism. Your journalism was able to, uh, you know, keep people informed and you know, get them knowledgeable of the facts and, and uh, motivated them to take action. So, uh, you know, there's that. So, But as you know, we live in a very rural area there. The power lines are exposed to the elements. They're out there. And now it seems like we're having more and more serious weather and it's causing more and more power outages. So I could see the town's push to sort of go ahead and try to be proactive in uh, cutting down these trees. Yeah, tree, trees, are, you know, I mean, in some parts of the world, you know, uh, the Netherlands, uh, parts of England, uh, Germany, uh, the power lines are buried. You know, uh, I mean, that's, that's a nice solution. Uh, it's somewhat expensive, especially in a state like New York where, to do anything like that would require a state bid, uh, you know, <laughs> prevailing wage, you know, all, all those sort of things. I, I don't I haven't costed it out and maybe I will because it, I think it would be a, an interesting thing, an interesting exercise. But, you know, I, I imagine it would be very, very expensive. But, you know, um, we may get there because, as you noted, um, we're having these little violent storms and power outages are becoming more and more frequent and not everybody has a good generator, you know. So, hey, you know, but, um, but uh, you know, we'll see. And people will have the opportunity to come to the town board meeting. The next one, I believe, is October the 6th. I guess the Thursday. Am I right about that? Uh, yes, it's October the 6th. will be the next town of Washington town board meeting. If you're upset about these trees, come and talk about it. Uh, tell the town board your concerns. They, they will not do anything that they think uh, will be massively unpopular. That's for sure. We were talking to Chris Rowley, 
reporter for the Shawanga Journal, letting us know what's happening in Ulster County and in Ellenville. Chris, thank you so much for joining us on the local edition. We'll talk to you again in two weeks. Okay, take care, Patricio. Bye-bye, everybody. It's Friday on the local edition. I'm your host, Patricio Rabaya. Thank you so much, Chris, for that. We'll be right back. And we will continue our Hispanic Heritage Month celebrations talking to Professor Jean Cohen. This is a local edition on a Friday. On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Adam Burke found out about the very real crime of wine fraud. Wine fraud is just what I call a sommelier. <laughs> oh, really? Notes of oak? Get out of here. I'm Peter Sagal. Can we interest you in a bold yet fruity news quiz with notes of sophomoric humor? Join us for this week's show with special guest Michael Strahan. That's Wait, Wait from NPR. Sunday morning at 10 on Radio Catskill. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the local edition. News and information to keep you connected in the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania. I've been your host, Patricia Robayo. It's Hispanic Heritage Month, and on Radio Casca, we are honoring the cultures and contributions of the people with ancestors from Latin America and other Spanish-speaking countries all month long. SUNY Orange is hosting a series of talks around Hispanic Heritage Month. The first one is happening next week, Wednesday, on the 28th at 1 p.m. at the Gilman Center in the library room at room 130 at the Middletown campus. It will be about transnational migration with Professor Gene Cohen, who's on the phone with us now. Uh, Professor, welcome to the program. What exactly is transnational migration? The concept of transnationalism is, is, is the concept. It doesn't have the bureaucratic idea of papers. Uh, if you go internationally, you carry the idea that you have a permit. Transnationalism is without a permit. So that is the main concept. And transnational migration is without the permit from one country to another, from one city to another. Could be... Um, internal transnational migration in Latin America, let's say Venezuela to Colombia, Venezuela to Brazil, uh, Venezuela to Panama, or could be from Venezuela all the way to the U.S. So it's the migration of a person between countries, like I said, without a permit, without a visa, without kind of legal, I guess, entry uh, between the countries, making their way all the way up to the United States and to, uh, to all the borders there. The new ideal migration you migrate crossing into, let's say that you're crossing from Venezuela to Colombia, then you all go up all the way to the Mexican border, and then you cross the frontier, and you hope that you get detained, and then you're in line for your papers. That is one possibility. The other possibility is by plane, in the case of Venezuelans, not in the case of Cubans, you arrive into Miami, usually to Miami, and then you overstay. So there's two possibilities, uh, by plane or walking. Is that your area of study as a professor, looking at the migration of Venezuelans and Cubans? I, I, I do transnational migration for all Latin Americans, but I, I found that the numbers of Cubans and then also the numbers of Venezuelans increasing a lot. 
And so that is the reason I'm, I'm thinking about it and I'm doing research about it is because I, I think the numbers are, are different than two or three years ago by a lot. So that is, uh, and, and you see the numbers of Venezuelans and Cubans increasing, not only to Florida, but to the Northeast and to Texas. What have you found in your research so far that caused this, this jump in migration from those countries? I, I found three things. Number one, number one is the, the economic conditions of, of, of Venezuela and Cuba. After COVID uh, and, and during the COVID period, the conditions were horrible. And after the dictatorship in Venezuela, um, there was an increase of immigrants from Venezuela to all over Latin America, around 4 million people left Venezuela, including 2 million are right now in Colombia. It's a very interesting the diaspora there of Venezuelans. And then, and then uh, the first economic conditions, second, the idea of uh, hope and, 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 and freedom, political freedom, social freedom. And, 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 and the third, because there is already two diasporas of Venezuelans and uh, Cubans in the United States that create that idea that we can live together. Because we have the tendency as a, as a community to move where we are. So Cubans move to Miami, Florida, traditionally, yes, traditionally. And uh, Venezuelans are moving also to Florida because it's close to Latin America. Also, it's interesting uh, to Houston. There's a new diaspora there. And also to the Northeast. So that is the traditional migration pattern that we're seeing right now. Talking about migration, what are your thoughts on the current situation that's happening in the southern border? These migrants are coming from countries like Venezuela, another place in Central and South America, making their way all the way up through Mexico to the southern border, seeking asylum. And now they are being bused or plane to different parts of the country. What are your thoughts on that situation that's going on right now? Depends how you see it. We can see it in, 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 in the idea that it, it, it was horrible what happened that they sent the immigrants to, to the Northeast. But if, if, if you listen to the interviews of the immigrants, they feel, they feel that they have better conditions in the Northeast than they are in Texas. So it depends how you see it. So we can see it in the human way in which you talk to the immigrant that they feel comfortable in the Northeast, or you can see it in the emotional way in which, okay, there's horrible what they did. So there is two ways to see it, and I think we need to consider both. And I think we need to consider the conditions in Texas. Uh, there are thousands of immigrants coming into Texas, and, 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 and it's the reception state. And, and many of them, they don't plan to stay there. But many of them plan to move to other areas when they have a community. And, and, and it's important to consider that. Not only the state, but also what about them? What they want? What are the diaspora? So I think it's important to consider both. Yes, the current, I guess, uh, theme that's going on now with the southern border is the human rights travesty that's going on. But you said, there is a different side to this. What are the what are the migrants are thinking, and what do the migrants want for themselves? Uh, you said the situation that they're going through, traveling through the jungle, traveling through miles and miles of rough terrain just to get to America, 
And, you know, while the yes, they might be bused to places like Martha's Vineyard, but to them, they have freedom. And maybe uh, this is a chance uh, in, in any part of the country to sort of make it. And whatever situation that they're finding themselves now, maybe are thinking that this situation now is, is a lot better than it was in their home country. Exactly. Exactly. Especially when they cross the Darien. The Darien is in an area, it's a jungle area between Colombia and Panama. Usually it takes four to five days to cross the area. And, um, and, and the conditions are horrible. But I think that the worst for them, I, I, I follow some interviews about them and the worst for them is to get the money in order to cross Mexico. Because they need someone and they have to pay someone in order to cross Mexico. And usually it runs around $10,000. So for the immigrants, it's very difficult. So sometimes they have to wait two or three or four or five months, wait for someone to patronize that because it's very difficult. The so-called coyotes or coyotes are the ones that, 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 you know, allow them or made them pass into the United States and get detained by the migration and the, 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 the U.S. border patrol. I think that is the worst, according to the interviews that I read. They're paying smugglers to get them into the country and with the hopes, like I said, of a better life here in America. And uh, many, you know, are I've heard, heard horror stories in the past that some of them are just left for dead in the desert or in the jungles uh, or killed and just the money is taken from them. But they have to sort of go on a, on a hope uh, to make it there safe. Yeah. And, 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 and now there is a couple of documentaries about Cuban and, and 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 Venezuelan immigrants that that they're flying from Cuba and Venezuela to Nicaragua because Nicaragua stopped all the restrictions uh, for visa. It's a visa waiver waiver, and now they can fly there and then walk from Nicaragua to United States with the idea to get the paper. But uh, I was looking also at the numbers, and during the Trump administration, they have the possibility of, I think, 15,000 asylum seekers every year. The Biden administration increased the number for around 125,000. However, the Biden administration doesn't have the resources or the logistics for them to apply. So the line is around 12 years, 10 to 12 years. According to the studies, you're giving a talk at SUNY Orange and the Middletown campus at 1 p.m. next week, Wednesday, at the Gilman Center. Transnational migration, invisibility, poverty, and hope. When folks attend this program, what can they expect? Uh, the, the focus will be the new migration from Cubans and and, and, and and Venezuela. The reason I focus in Cubans is is the biggest migration, even bigger even bigger than the Mariel migration in the 1980s, which I think is fundamental because I don't know if you remember uh, in the 80s, the migration from, from Mariel, from the Port of Mariel to Miami in the Carter administration. And that was uh, very interesting. And now it's a bigger number from Cubans leaving Cuba because of the economic condition. And then also the Venezuelan migration because of the social policies of the Venezuelan government. So it's a very interesting thing. And I, and I think we need to see that because it's more than economic migration, which is 90% of the migration, but it's also a political and a social migration. 
And I think we need to talk about it and consider that. SUNY Orange is hosting Hispanic Heritage Month talk series, Unidos. Wednesdays at 1 p.m. at the Gilman Center Library in SUNY Orange, Middletown Campus. We're talking to Professor Jean Kowan, Transnational Migration, Invisibility, Poverty, and Hope. It's happening next week, Wednesday. Professor, thank you so much for joining us on the local edition and letting us know about this talk that's coming up next week. We hope to have you back on the program again soon. Thank you very much. You're very kind. Thank you. The Hispanic Heritage Month series is happening at SUNY Orange. These are happening on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. We just heard Professor Gene Kanwan that his talk is happening on September 28th. On October 5th, Change the Subject is a film screening and discussion. And on October 12th, I am your soy, a conversation with Professor Nancy Marillo and Professor Rebecca C. Rivera-Robayo. This is happening on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. at SUNY Orange. For more information, visit SUNYOrange.edu. And that does it for the local edition. I've been your host, Patricio Robayo. Thank you so much for spending your your Friday night with me. And we hope you start you off your weekend right with the mixtape coming up at 7 p.m. But we'll be back on Monday and we'll be talking to the Southern County government about their four cleanup. Also, be checking in with the Southern County Democrats. See what's on the pages of the Democrat. If you ever miss a show, we have a podcast. You can find us anywhere you find your favorite podcast. Apple, Stitcher, Google. Search for WJFF, the local edition. Subscribe, share it, and tell your friends. Find us on social media. We're at WJFF Radio Catskill. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Still trying to get on TikTok. I don't know what's, what's going on there. We post 4 p.m. Monday through Friday on Who's on the Show. You can visit our website, WJFF Radio. Dot org slash the local edition. You can find upcoming guests, see past guests, and you can listen to the show. You've been listening to the local edition. I'm your host, Patricia Robayo. Have a good night, Lucy. Have a good night, Dad. This is Radio Catskill, your NPR station, WJFF Jeffersonville, W238H Monticello. Have a great weekend, folks. Take care.